You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against This Dream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. And so tonight's topic is going to be purification of conduct and uh, more narrowly around the purification of conduct for monks. According to the Vasudhimaga, purification of conduct refers to four kinds of morality uh, that are completely purified. Moral purity is indeed completely clean, cleansed, through observing the monastic rules beginning with the fourfold morality. Purification of conduct refers to the purification of four kinds of morality that I will fully explain in this section. The morality of observing the monastic precepts, the morality of pursuing a pure livelihood, the morality of wisely using requisites uh, and carefully restraining the senses. So, who here is planning to be a monastic soon? Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> so, no one. So then we have the, the, the question is, why is it relevant then to us as householders what the concern for the purification of conduct for monastics would be, in this case, monks, not even nuns? Um, we do have householder precepts and we will talk more about purification of conduct for laity. Um, in our culture, uh, the, um, the desire, for instance, for our uh, parentage, our caregivers, for us to be monastics is probably missing. But uh, when I was in Burma, I... Uh, I hired a, a guide. One of the reasons I did that was because the, the, the language is impervious to my ear. I haven't been conditioned to understand Burmese, so I, I actually can't even pick out the words in a sentence. I can pick out the sound of the language, but that's about it. It's a tonal language, so that even picking out the words isn't going to be so helpful because every word has four meanings depending on what tone you say it is, and to tell you the truth, I can't even pick out the tones listening to people talk. I can't read the signs because the language, the alphabet is a different alphabet, and, the, and they, they don't have uh, English translations available. Most people don't speak English, and so uh, I like to go places, and, and so it seemed more expedient to hire a guide. And in the conversations I had with the guide, he being the eldest son, it was very important to his father that he become a monk. And so there were two periods in his life when he became a monk. Uh, the first period was when he was uh, 15, and he was in the monastery for about five weeks, but he was kicked out of the monastery because he would sneak off and go dancing. <laughs> he loved pop music and he couldn't restrain himself from sneaking out at night and going dancing. So they kicked him out. 
And then uh, a few years later, his father, who was so disappointed that he hadn't become a monk, uh, uh, talked him into going again, and he went back in the monastery. And this time he lasted 10 days. And the, the reason that he lasted 10 days was because on the alms walk, he kept looking at pretty girls. So you're supposed to, you know, lockstep and walk forward with the gaze uh, averted from everything in the world, and a pretty girl would walk by and he would look at them. <laughs> and so the, the monk, the head monk, called him in and said, why actually did you come here to this monastery? Why do you want to be a monk? And he said, it's important to my father that I be a monk. And so they kicked him out, because that isn't a good reason to be a monk. So in, 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 in that culture, it's very ordinary to have that familiar pressure to be something that's reflective on the family. Um, there are more than 200 precepts that monks follow, more than 300 that nuns follow. Can you imagine a life where your uh, conduct in the world is so completely constricted by these uh, obligations that you take on. Are you familiar that uh, laity, lay people have uh, precepts that, that you're asked to undertake? Five, typically eight, perhaps. In the tradition uh, that... Um, who uh, Indukaseadau is, who's actually one of the, the people that are that are responsible for this book. Uh, nine is the number that, that you take on a retreat that you go. The ninth one is that you you obligate yourself to be continuously re- radiating metta to all beings all of the time, because it's a metta vipassana uh, strategy that he uses. But you could have also. 10 or 11 precepts. It's not unusual. Um, And have you undertaken, do you know what the precepts are and have you undertaken the precepts and do you attempt to live in a moral way, in an ethical way? When you first came to the practice, um, what was your ethical relationship to the world, was it something that was important to you? Had you examined it? Had you understood that you learned in your family system the the moral structure that they, your caregivers engaged with the world? Are you clear what they were and, and how that caused you to be in the world? And is it so different than this process? The first one being to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm by killing. It's pretty universal. Did most of us will have grown up with that one. Did they teach you uh, to refrain from causing harm through the practice of abstaining from taking what is not freely given or stealing? I know in, in my family I, I, I stole often and... Uh, because it, it relieved a kind of anxiety and it was a kind of revenge that I could exact on the very restrictive environment that I grew up in. Mostly money, but also other things. Um, 
to practice refraining from causing harm through sexual misconduct, it's often translated, or sexual conduct. Uh, often talked about not using pornography, not using prostitutes, not uh, engaging in sexual relationships with people who are in committed relationships. They're not causing harm in that way. Not causing harm for yourself through risky sex or sex that could lead to illness. How do you define that for yourself? Have you been able to do that? Do you notice that you override uh, that and engage in self-destructive behavior in the, in the desire to satisfy sexual desire? Or are you able not to do that? Do you uh, um, break the terms of your sexual commitment in the relationship you're in? Do you break that commitment that other other people may have, or do you are you actually in only involved in sexual relationships with people who are free to be in relationship to you? only engaging in relationships where you are free to do that. These are these moral considerations. Um, <clears throat> undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through speech. These are the householders. Undertaking the practice to refrain from causing harm through imbibing intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. Undertaking uh, the practice to refrain uh, from dancing or wearing garlands or perfume. Undertake the precept to um, refrain from causing harm or to undertake the precept to uh, not eat after noon. So in, in Burma, we take all, all nine of these precepts, and so you get up at 4.30, you meditate, and then you have uh, breakfast at 6 a.m., and then you meditate. Well, you do, there's a period of working meditation, and then a period of meditation, and then you have your main meal at 11 a.m., and then you don't actually eat again until 6 a.m., and there's what we call juice in the afternoon. You get a <laughs> cup of juice, sometimes two cups of juice. <laughs> and how easily can you do that? To intentionally radiate metta to all sentient beings at all times is the ninth precept. Um, so how does that stack up? With, with nine precepts, can you imagine adding another two or three hundred to that? How would that be? When you miss sleeping on high beds. Oh, did I? Yeah. yeah. Sleeping on that. high beds. In Burma, it's nearly ubiquitous, the idea of sleeping on a high bed. And, and actually what that means is that the mattresses are about an inch thick. So it is, it is a bruising experience to, uh, to sleep on a, a low bed.
seeing danger in the slightest faults, observing the commitments he has taken on, um, observing the monastic precepts that were established by the Buddha to restrain one's actions of body and speech from transgression is called the morality of observing monastic precepts. This kind of morality protects one from numerous kinds of dangers and sufferings. A monk should take great care not to break any one of the precepts. He should consider even minor offenses to be dangerous since they can interfere with his prospects for attaining the path and fruition and lead him to rebirth in the lower realms. If a monk happens to break a precept, he should correct it as soon as possible, just as a child would immediately drop a red-hot charcoal that he had accidentally picked up. A monk expiates his offense by observing Um, probation and penance of ostracism and by relinquishing any money or materials according to the procedures given in the scriptures. Once the offense has been restored in accord with the rules for monks, the monk should determine not to commit such offense again. In this way, he fully purifies observation of the monastic principles. When you came to meditation, did you come because you wanted fruition and path knowledge? Do you know what that is? Did you come because you wanted to be enlightened? Do you know what they mean by enlightenment? Do you know what fruition means? Do you know what path knowledge means? So fruition would mean that you have the experience of cessation, so that the practice leads to the fruit of cessation and that coming out of the cessation experience you have path knowledge that is to say you know whether or not you've taken a path and you know which one you've taken do you know what cessation or narota is so that's the cessation of awareness do you know what awareness is right awareness is the the capacity of knowing, the mind knowing what the body mind is doing. Awareness knows what the body mind is doing. In some sense, awareness knows the conscious experience, so you have the capacity to sense something, an object that can be sensed when they meet. A consciousness of that sensing experience arises which awareness knows. And when the object and the capacity to sense separate, the consciousness of that sensing experience ends and awareness knows that. So awareness is nearly always there and it's neutral in the sense that it it just knows what's happening. It doesn't have any suffering, it doesn't have any feeling, any evaluation, it's just a knowingness. So fruition is the cessation of awareness. You're all familiar with the cessation of awareness. But this is a little different than what the common experience of that is. Uh, Are you aware that when you go to sleep uh, that sometimes there's awareness and sometimes there isn't in sleep? Do you dream? Do you have a sense of dreaming? That would be awareness knowing that you're in in a sleep state. But there's, there's a period of sleep where awareness actually shuts off. Deep sleep, there's no awareness. Most of the night, though, 
you'll have some awareness active because the deep sleep is a, maybe an hour out of the time that you're asleep. And the rest of the time there's some awareness. You may not remember the content of the dreams, but there may be some awareness there. And the other one is anesthesia. You know, when we have surgery of general anesthetic does not kill pain, it kills awareness. So you're not present for the experience of what's happening. So in the, the, the traditional Theravada model of what enlightenment is, you go through 16 stages of enlightenment. The, uh, the, I think the 12th one, if I'm remembering correctly, is fruition. So the end of awareness, and then when you come out of that, you come into uh, path knowledge, whether you've taken path or you haven't. And there's four paths. One is known as stream entry. So stream entry is uh, the eradication of the first three fetters. Have you noticed that the, that Buddhism is a lot of lists that are embedded in lists that are embedded in lists? So in a traditional Theravada Buddhism, enlightenment is the erratic, the the four path model is the eradication of ten fetters. So two different lists. The first three fetters that are eradicated in stream entry are a belief in religious ceremony being the same thing as enlightenment or leading to enlightenment. Uh, the eradication in a belief of a continuous, ongoing, constant self experience and the eradication of the hindrance of doubt. It is thought that if you have stream entry, you're reincarnated seven more times. In the, in the model of dependent origination, the end of suffering is the cessation of rebirth. And so the, 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 the thought of reincarnation is embedded in this. The thought of karma is embedded in this. The second path is known as once-returner. So you're reincarnated one more time as a once-returner and you have the experience of weakening craving and aversion but not eradicating them. And each time you cycle through, there's fruition, so cessation, and then knowing whether you've had path knowledge or not. The third path is the eradication of craving and aversion and it's thought when you get to third path that you no longer reincarnate. So in Hinayana Buddhism, the lesser vehicle, there's no uh, bodhisattva vow to, con- to intentionally reincarnate until all sentient beings are liberated, which would be in a Mahayana or a Vajrayana, a, a Zen or Chan or Tibetan. And then the fourth path is the eradication of the five remaining fetters, which are restlessness and agitation, uh, sloth and torpor, the craving for existence, the craving for non-existence, and the last one to go is conceit. Oh, what a good meditator I am. Do you have the sense that if you don't undertake the practice that you could be born into a lower realm. So in, in a lot of these uh, traditional uh, texts, 
there's the understanding of the Buddhist cosmology and, and the different realms that you can take rebirth in, totally tied into the idea of reincarnation. But here in the West, do you have a belief in reincarnation? Do you believe that? Do you have an understanding of the uh, architecture of the different realms and where you might prefer to be reborn? Rather than being born in the human realm, maybe in the deva realm or the celestial being realm. Does this resonate with you at all? Or is it not really what brought you to a meditation center and learning to meditate? Not the thing that fuels the desire to become a monastic. Do you have the sense of the precious human life that you have and the, the uniqueness of understanding that there are teachings by the Buddha that could lead to liberation and how unusual it is in, in the world that we live in that you might have encountered this and actually have the capacity to practice now? Do you have the sense of the impermanent nature of life where those things could change, that, 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 uh, that you would be unable to practice either through illness or the change in your resources so that the time would no longer be available to you. And does that create an urgency for you to practice doing it now because there may not be a later for you to practice? It's an idea. Pursuing a pure livelihood, seeking or receiving the four requisites in accord with the rules for monks is called uh, the morality for pursuing a pure livelihood. What are the requisites, the four requisites? For? Food, water, shelter, and medicine. Okay, close enough. Clothing. Oh, I missed <laughs> Right, clothing... Food, shelter, and medicine are the four requisites. And how do you attain them? Actually, they work for householders too, right? Although none of us are wearing robes. Do you buy the clothes that you wear because they're functional and they protect you from the environment? Is that the the main reason that you've selected what you're wearing? Or do they reflect some sense of identification with the tribe that you, if I can use the word tribe, uh, identify with in culture or they're, they're kind of broadcasting of the kind of person that you might like to meet, might like to associate with, be involved with, what is the purpose of it? And how does that change? Are you fashionable? Do you have some sense of what the current fashion is? Or are you impervious to that? I like to say that I've been wearing this since high school, basically. This outfit, black pocketed t-shirt, blue jeans. Um, I like to... that's not black. What? You've washed that too many times. It's no longer black. (laughs) It was. Um... It's only because my internal age is 13 still. (laughs) (laughs) 
If a monk obtains any of the four requisites by violating the rules for monks, the offenses are called uh, offenses meriting expulsion, offenses requiring a convening of the sangha, serious infractions or improper conduct depending on uh, what kind of action he has committed. Improper action is the most common offense. Uh, The use of requisites by one has the use of requisites that one has improperly acquired is also improper conduct. The observation of monastic precepts is also broken when one commits these offenses. This can damage the monk's prospects for celestial rebirth, path knowledge, and fruition. When these offenses are restored by way of the aforementioned procedures, the observation of monastic precepts can again be purified and one escapes from these dangers. Um, let's see here. The fourth one is restraining the senses. Restraining the senses means to carefully restrain the senses in order to prevent the arising of defilements when one of the six types of sense objects enters one of the six sense doors and arouses one of the sixth sense consciousnesses. I will only give a detailed explanation of how to restrain oneself in order to have this kind of pure morality with regard to the eye sense door. One can understand the other senses in a similar manner. On seeing a form with the eye, he does not grasp at its signs and features. When seeing a form with the eye, a monk should not recognize a person by his or her male or female form or by physical gestures or facial expressions. As the commentary says, let seeing be just seeing. The subcommentary explains that one should not allow one's mind to wander beyond the mere fact of seeing by paying attention to how beautiful or ugly a person is and so forth. Mental defilements of craving and, and so on often result from paying close attention to the face and limbs of the opposite sex. So one should not take an active interest in the bodily parts of a person of the opposite sex, the face, eyes, uh, eyebrows, nose, lips, breasts, chest, arms, legs, and so on. Similarly, one should not take an active interest in his or her gestures, the way he or she smiles, laughs, talks, pouts, casts a side glance, and so on. As the commentary says, he only uh, apprehends what is really there. According to this quote, one should pay attention only to what is really exists in the person who is seen. What really exists in the person is hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, tendons, bones, and so on. Alternatively, one should observe the four primary material elements so, and uh, secondarily derived material elements in a person. I will now explain how restraint arises in accordance with the commentary. When a visual form stimulates the eye door, a sequence of mind moments occur as follows. One attends to the object, eye consciousness, sees the object, receives the object, investigates the object, determines the object, and fully perceives the object or moves toward it. 
Restraint may arise at the moment of full perception by means of morality, mindfulness, knowledge, forbearance, or effort. If any one of these forms of restraint, the morality of restraining the senses is fulfilled. How practical is this approach to being in the world going to be for people who are not monastics? Do you need to be able to see uh, somebody's facial expressions and recognize what that body language means? Do you find that as you look around the room and see people, do you notice arousal, say, or longing or attraction of some kind or repulsion of some kind? arise in relationship to the people that you look at and does that lead to suffering you know looking at can you get what you want can you not get what you want you have to put up with things that you don't want the subtle irritation that can arise from nothing actually being the way that you would have it if you could have it the way that you wanted it which leads to an understanding of how powerless really you are to have things the way that you want them. What would the advantage then be to restrain the senses so none of that arose, that when you look at somebody you see what's actually there, which is, say, have you ever done the meditation on uh, anatomical parts that's in the Satipatthana Sutta? Is it, what, 37 or 31 different parts? 34 parts of the body so you're looking at skin and hair and muscles and bones and guts and urine and feces all sitting in front of you in that alluring body (laughs) they're going to get old they're going to get sick and they're going to die and leave you there's nothing you can do about it you have the complete experience of what it is to see somebody. And does that lead you away from being attached, from clinging, from suffering, the cause of suffering is clinging? Do you notice in the engagement of looking at somebody else that there may be a projective identification with them? You see them actually the way that you want them to be and not actually the way that they are. And how do you adjust to the shocking revelation of how they are if it doesn't map on very well to um, what they, what you wanted them to be? We, we have a, a, a saying in... Uh, on retreat practice called uh, the Vipassana Romance, if you've ever heard the term, that you're in silence on retreat and you see the person sitting in front of you day after day after day uh, in, in silence in meditation, so there's almost no outward expression of who they are other than what they're wearing. And actually you're not supposed to be looking at them above their ankles, so really... You're just looking at pairs of socks that come by and deducing who they must be from their selection of socks, projecting endlessly on them, falling in love, deeply, passionately in love. You can't wait for the retreat to end so that you can actually rush up to them and say, I love you! (laughs) 
which we advise you not to do. Uh, in fact, I would advise you not to speak them at, to them at all because it's such a crushing blow <laughs> <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> so you just sort of ease yourself over and say, hello. And uh, three words into their response, the crystal castle of your Vipassana romance begins to crumble and fall to the earth. And then you get to watch that mind of yours, what it does with the actual experience, and then you come back to that insight of around and the, the value of restraining the senses so that you don't let the mind run off with you the way that it can easily do. It makes sense. I am... Um, anyway. Enough of that, huh? So you know what these... what the purification is? These four kinds of... practices for monks. Um, next time we'll, we'll talk about the purification of conduct for laity and maybe that would be more in order. But I think often that we, particularly when we come into Buddhism from our cultural conditioning, which may not have included this, we have a, a, a fantasy about what monastic life might be. So it's interesting to consider actually the, the rigorous nature of it. When I first came in into um, uh, uh, practice and I, I mentioned to a, a monastic that I was considering uh, monastic life, he said to me, oh no, 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 monastic life isn't for you. You function much too well for that. The monasteries are, are in this country are filled with people who can't make it in the outside world. You probably have a chance at that, so you shouldn't consider being a monk. Um, and then we have the idea of what it is to be a monk in Asia. Does that mean that you think that you're going to be meditating the whole time when actually you'd probably meditate very little as a monk in Asia? Only one out of seven monks in Asia actually practice meditation. In Burma, because of Mahasi Sayadaw, meditation is everywhere, laity and also monastics. It was such great fun to get in, to every cab we got into, we would ask um, the cab driver what their meditation practice was and who their teacher was. And almost all of the time, they would just go on and on about their practice and who their teacher was and who were the better teachers. And it was an amazing experience. Um, the most common response in separating from somebody uh, was the question, did you feel well enough taken care of in our time together? Such an interesting place. So often people would say, Thank you for your loving kindness. So different than the way that our culture is set up. Very particular to Burma. So, do you, do you think on, because of that, uh, do you have any sense that on average 
people are suffering from this? Um, I understand, you know, it's pervasive in culture. So yeah. Like, interesting, what is it? What's the effect of that? Are they suffering less? I don't know. Um, I had a very, in, in some sense, rarefied view because we went to, we stayed at a hotel where uh, they were benefactors of the of the monastery where we were going to go. We were constantly being taken around by people who had a rich practice and seemed quite happy and. So, uh, from that perspective, it, it did seem so. Um, but I, I couldn't say beyond the that. Curious. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a very poor country too. Oh yeah. So the average. There's a lot of suffering to be dealt with. Yeah. We went out into the countryside because uh, I, I had, I wanted to see what the the ordinary life was, and it was. Uh, poor and initially frightening to me um, it was so poor in a way that's different than than here um, but people were very kind and very friendly everywhere we went curious I you find the same in India if you go into rural India in small villages and stuff and just, especially go by yourself uh, it's, it's incredible people of course are very poor and uh, and uh, Life expectancy isn't so great, mm-hmm. and yet you find that they're very industrious. Everybody's busy right. at something, and and uh, in general, they seem reasonably happy. Mm-hmm. That was my experience. Yeah. So now, um, in in this book, it isn't until we get to chapter five and we're on chapter one that we begin to talk about vipassana meditation. Um, and so uh, I think, uh, just in the, in the way that I think about this combined metta-vipassana practice, that what we should be doing as we come to this uh, um, vipassana practice is really building up our um, metta practice. Um, if you're confident that no matter how difficult the vipassana practice may become, that you have a refuge that you can come to to calm the body-mind, it makes you pretty confident to go into the vipassana practice. If you're concerned that if you get too deep into the, the vipassana practice and it could be too disruptive that you'd have a hard time backing out and functioning well in your daily life, it makes you much more timid in your exploration of it coming into a metta practice where you can actually concentrate well enough to pull the body-mind out of the distressing experience into one that is calm and cool and kind is very useful. I've been teaching this way for years. As long as I've been teaching here, I've been teaching this. But what I'm discovering now in in going in uh, deeper with people is that they don't actually develop enough of a metta practice that that actually is the result. And so I think it's very useful to practice in in developing this so that you have the resource available to you when you need it. That if you notice that the mind is becoming angry, that it takes a very short period of time to calm it down and bring it into peace. And that's what you can do with the metta practice, particularly when it's organized around concentration 
rather than generating a specific emotional response, mostly I notice to a narrative. So we're going to practice some metta, um, and what I would like to do is do an exploration of uh, who it is that you can bring to mind that in the thought of them brings the mind state of metta. So part of this is going to be understanding actually what is the mind state of metta. So the mind state of metta is a coolness of mind, a calmness of mind, and a, a kind mind. So part of this is going to be exploring actually what is that mind state feel like so that you can know whether it's there or not. Do everybody know what a mind state is? What, what that is? Do you know when the mind is angry? Do you know when the mind is not angry? That would be the mind state of anger. Do you know when the mind is craving? Do you know when the mind is not craving? Do you know when the mind is scattered? Do you know when the mind is concentrated? These are the these are perceptions of mind states. Um, so I think that most of you recognize the quality of mind that you're in in the moment. Maybe you haven't worked on labeling which mind state it is, but you know one state of mind from another. Do you, everybody? I mean, I woke up this morning and zero concentration, total fog, the normal task of speaking was challenging. Um, and one of the things about me is I get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and I make a cup of espresso and then I sit and I get ready to do morning meditation. But I don't actually know how my capacity to speak is going to be until it begins because I haven't said anything to anyone. So it's a kind of, uh, I, I find it to be an enjoyable comedy of what the body-mind is like this morning. And this morning it was extremely challenged in saying anything. But that's a particular that's a particular mind state. It was a very gripping self arising this morning. If I can slip into no self, then it pretty much just happens on its own, and I don't really have to do anything. Um, so, paying attention to what a mind state is and what it, what's there, uh, maybe it's the elimination of all of the other mind states. Uh huh. Traditional Theravada Buddhism, there's a metaphysical component to doing metta, and so not only does it need to be a person, but it needs to be a living person. Because in some sense, there needs to be a receptor for the radiation of metta. And in order to become deeply concentrated in, in metta practice, there needs to be a, a living, viable receptor for the, the metta to happen. I personally have not explored whether this is true or not. Uh, um, so, um, 
it isn't, I guess, in, in some sense, interesting enough to do that. If you find that it's working, we want it to know whether it's true metta or whether it might fall into the near enemy of metta, which would be sentimentality. So that rather than being in the present moment in the experience of the mind state of metta, we get pulled away into thinking and we're actually generating a story which is generating a feeling which would be the near enemy of metta, not the actual experience of metta. That would be the, the danger for, for that. Um, so I might rather do the exploration as the instructions are offered, whether you succeed in or not, rather than um, slip into sentimentality. Near the reason that they call that a near enemy is it's often very difficult to tell the difference between the state of true metta and the the state of the. the virtual experience or synthetic experience of it. A lot of, uh, a lot of the practice in the West is around narratives that generate a, a feeling of um, positivity or warmth or something like that. And, and in doing it in, in a concentration practice, we're really just looking at the mind state itself, not in any of the rest of it. So whether there's a, a warm uh, feeling of loving-kindness present or not, doesn't matter in, in, in the way that I'm describing practice. It's just whether or not that mind state is there or not. The mind state always being cool, always being kind, always being peaceful in a way. If you, uh, in, as we do this exercise, look for the short list of people that if you think of them, brings with them this mind state, then suddenly you have this very tangible tool that's easy to use. You notice the mind is running off in anger and then you intentionally think of somebody who in the thought of them brings in the mind state of metta. Then you can displace the mind state of anger with the mind state of metta easily. And the more that you do it, the more reliable it is in that. And so that you have this great capacity when you notice the mind running off on you to bring it back into this place of kindness. find it very useful. So today we'll do a little bit of, uh, of exploration about who that short list might be and then see if we can bridge it out to ourselves. So that in practicing for ourselves, intending the metta for ourselves, do we notice that the mind state of metta is there or not? And then if we notice that it disappears on us when we're working with ourselves, we can think intentionally of the other person, recharge the mind, and then come back into practice for ourselves until we get to the point where we can train the mind to associate the mind state of metta when we think of ourselves and move out of that judging mind that I was talking to somebody about it, uh, the critical mind, self-critical mind when we notice that the self-critical mind arises in relationship to thoughts of ourselves, we can move that out and come into a place of kindness for ourselves. George, is, is this a combined concentration meta, this sort of integrated approach, is that a Mahasi mm -hmm. approach directly, or is that something uh, developed in his tradition by his uh, successors? Um, I, I think that it's what he taught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At so least, we should encounter it. 
Right. That's what he, at least that's what uh, Indica has said, that, that this is what he taught. He didn't teach it to everybody, but he did teach it. All right, so... Any questions about this? I'll do some guidance so you should be able to follow along. Mm-hmm. Do you notice that, in maybe just more in the West, that when people are trying to discover meta-mind states, it's not like samadhi or calmness or even trust, it's like happiness. Right. And that's why people, I think, tend to get sucked into these moments of of trying to be in, in some fantasy re-storytelling of a happy moment. And happiness isn't necessarily equatable to like loving kindness or calmness or trust or safety. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I think that that's, when people are looking for meta, it's not, that's not, you're not looking to be happy. Right. You know. You're not looking to have any emotional experience at all. Right. It's like when you're sitting in the car with your parents, and you're not fighting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're driving, and you're, and it's just that moment of like, okay, we're, we're sitting in the car. Right. With somebody I can trust. And then you're just like, okay. Good. Makes sense. So I record these classes and I put them into a Dropbox. Uh, We're probably going to take 18 months to go through all of this material. You may not be able to come to all of the classes, but if you'd like to be able to keep up with it, if you are not already on the DYP um, Dropbox, if you put your name and email address on here, you'll be invited to it. Anybody want that? And then if somebody else wants it, just pass it along. So how did that go? Uh huh. Good. I have a question, sort of the same one as last week. I'm zeroing in on it a little bit. Um, you're talking about keeping the, the thought, the feeling of not the thought of of meta in mind and focusing on that. When you're doing that, are let's say the emotional aspects, which are especially Sukha, which is pretty close, of our friend very well said it's different, and I know it is. But when you are trying to focus on the meta, are the are Piti and Sukha gone, or are you just not concentrating? Because these things kept seem to pop up, and I realized I was a little bit gleeful to be. Uh, just momentarily, and I, I go, well, this feels more like PT or settle down. Super. And then finally, I, but in other words, you understand what I'm asking her? When, when you're concentrating on, on, the, on the one, are the others not there, or are they but the, the object of meditation is the mind state, and the narrow concentration tends to lead to the five aspects of jhana. Right. So that they would be there. Okay, we're just not focusing on it. Right. Okay, that's what I hope. Thank you. Okay, good.
Someone else? You know when you're in jhana because all five of them are there. I suspect I'm always from that, but it's something that All right. Uh-huh. Um, I would have to ask is, um, does it matter if you say, you know, when you are having metta, showing metta, or giving metta to yourself, may I be peaceful? Or do you, for instance, say, may you be peaceful, but you actually be yourself? Right. Um, that's an interesting uh, nuance to this. Where is the identification? So if you're coming from a place of being in the experience of self, then I tends to be more uh, the way to go. But if you're in outside of that, watching the experience of self, then maybe you would be the, the better way to go. So I think it's an interesting exploration of where where your identification is centered in the moment that you're doing it. So, for instance, with the forgiveness phrases, forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself, depending on where my identification is, I can use any one of them to relate to myself. So, so yes, (laughs) short answer. Well, you felt it, right? Yeah, that would be a good way to go. Yeah, totally. In some sense, when, for instance, with the forgiveness practice, sometimes it's forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, but then sometimes I say, I forgive you, I forgive you. And that seems, the felt sense of that is better. Or I forgive myself. Because there is no permanent ongoing sense of self, our relationship to that experience can be quite different depending on where we've identified. So, good. Good to notice. Good insight, I would say. I have one more question. I'm, I'm curious as to why you chose the word um, peaceful, let's say, as opposed to happy or any of the more traditional phrases, because I'm having fun with it. I'm having it work, too. Um, I didn't choose it uh, why? Well, what do you see the benefit of it being? Why, so, why that work? Um, when you're doing metta practice for concentration, you want to use a concise phrase that's easy to remember so that you don't have to engage the part of mind that has to remember it or has to struggle in any way. Um, and uh, so the, the traditional phrases, may I be safe, may I be uh, happy, happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease, um, uh, Indica, my Burmese teacher felt, was too uh, uh, too big of an object in some sense, too complicated. So he narrowed it to, may I be well, happy, and peaceful. May I be well, happy, and peaceful. And then the last time I sat with him, he had further uh, reduced it to just, may I be peaceful. Um, If you look at the content of it, it's easy to wish even the difficult person, even the enemy, the desire to be peaceful, whereas wishing them well and happiness may be harder. (laughs) May you get what you want. No, I don't want you to have that. May you be peaceful, understanding that so much of people's difficult behavior comes from their lack of peace. We may wish them to be peaceful so that they're they're less 
harmony in the world. I noticed in bringing it down, like like you said, he did from three words and then to one. That I've been reading Paul Seidel talking about the the, the uh, John practices, mm -hmm. and he did a very similar thing where he had it down to just a word or two instead of the phrases. Is right. that um, in Burma, we were practicing a lot of the time with uh, well, happy, peaceful, well, huh? happy, peaceful, well, happy, peaceful. But you didn't have to work too hard to remember that. You know, it was so funny. Um, I'm so, I was so habituated at that time to the four phrases that I'd been using for a decade yes. that it was really hard to get the mind to shift. And then I would find myself doing my walking meditation, and my mind would be saying, uh, may all beans be pizza. May all beans be pizza. Give peas a chance. Oh no, my concentration's shot. <laughs> and I'm hungry. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, you know, I, I, I particularly like peaceful. It's actually, it has a good effect on me. But uh, really, in some sense, um, two things about this. One is, you're given the instruction, can you just do it? Or do you find that the mind simply cannot just do the instruction and it has to augment it or change it or do something else because to just do the instruction is an impossible internal emotional struggle. And so you change it to, is that creating some sense of uniqueness or some sense of something, right, around how you practice what your preferred phrase is, or can you just let all of that drop and just do the thing? Now, I'm trying not to be attached to it. I'm in the same boat that, that you were. I did it for so long that way. It's hard to do it, and then using a, a word that wasn't even in the fourth Right. Phrase, but I appreciate the chance to do it. And then... Uh, also the freedom to, to modify the practice so that it really works well for you. So an exploration of that, too. Well, isn't it the intention of the modification? Because a lot of people that change things is ego. Mm -hmm. You know, that uniqueness. It's like, I'm not going to do it, you tell me to do it. Right, period. But then some people also get confused on the identification of how to do it. Right. So that's why you just reduce it to a word. You don't have to think too much about it. You don't get conditioned to trying to figure all that out, and you just focus on the meditation. So that's why it's kind of like the bullion cube effect of going from four phrases to like three to one no. word. I just do a word. What do you do? It's meta. Meta. Okay. I mean, once it was understood what it, what I thought it was, which was just that. See, meta to me, that calmness is just almost neutrality. Mm -hmm. It's almost one step further than meta. It's not even meta. Well, there's always an inclining toward in meta. So it isn't the perfect equanimity of a jhana, vipassana jhana. That's, that's the main difference. You're always yeah. inclining the intention of loving kindness for someone, whether yourself or other people. So that you can get into the third jhana, but not into the fourth jhana in metta jhana. We were thinking of starting a punk band called Metta Jhana for Dead People. <laughs> because you're not supposed to be able to do 
a mentor for dead people and get into jhana. Or the opposite sex. <laughs> well, that's another thing. I, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, okay, no problem. I won't work with the opposite sex. <laughs> I'll work with the same sex. <laughs> Where could that go wrong? <laughs> mentioned that to the Sayadaw. And he sort of shrugged. All right. We're out of time. Thank you for coming. This is deepening your practice, so I'm always going to be encouraging of you to deepen your practice. Um, I'm doing a retreat starting tomorrow at Dhaka Lake, so if you want to come up, I think we could still squeeze you in. You could come for the whole uh, 12 nights, or you could go six, or come up next week and do six. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be really lovely up there this time of year. Uh, it's nice to be in the wilderness practicing. Um, uh, there's also going to be a retreat in the fall that uh, is going to be out at Joshua Tree. Dave Smith is doing that one with some other people. That's a week-long retreat. The retreats that I do are the Meaningful Life Retreat and they're a metta-vipassana, so that there's a lot of metta-practice and a lot of vipassana, but it's also oriented around relational mindfulness, so the exploration of how we come to relationships and how they serve us, and if we need to make some adjustments in how that happens, that we can move in the direction of more secure relationships so that they really um, work for us. Uh, a lot of us grow up in family systems and we come into the adult world with challenges in the way that we make relationships work and it's nice to be able to explore them and then support this this movement toward more uh, beneficial relationships. So that's the focus of my retreats. Um, the ATS retreats typically are focused around... Uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. So you're exploring the, the, the Satipatthana Sutta in those retreats. So it's a more a traditional uh, Theravadan approach. That's a week long out of Joshua Tree. And then in the fall, I'm going to be, uh, sorry, in the winter, I'm going to be doing the winter retreat, which is Lebanites up at La Casa de Marie in Montecito near Santa Barbara, which is also a lovely place to retreat. And that again will be a meaningful life retreat. And then in January, Mary Stancavage and Joanna Harper are doing a women's only retreat out in Joshua Tree. And then we can talk about the retreat schedule for next year, which I'm not, not sure is set. Uh huh. Is there, um, for the winter retreat that you're doing, is uh, there an option for something other than a full limitation? Yes, there is. You can do six or five. Um, that place is so. It's an old estate. It's in the middle of a 200-year-old live oak savanna. It's quite beautiful. Um, I'm also going to be doing uh, a couple of classes. I have a, a meditation interventions five-week series that's starting on July 29th. I'm also doing a day-long meditation interventions for the addiction process uh, on the 31st of January, sorry, of July. And then... In September, I'm going to be doing two nine-month intensives. So the intensive format is that you have two brick-and-mortar classes a month 
you have two mentoring sessions. These are one-on-one sessions over Skype with a meditation mentor, and then six mornings a week of guided meditation to support the practice. In the intensives, depending on the focus of the class, you have the cognitive piece, the instruction, and the meditation instruction, and then with the mentors, you have support in making sure that you understand the material and also that you understand the meditation strategies in relating to that. One of the classes is called the Meaningful Life. Um, Meaningful Life class is oriented around examining the way that you're in relationship based on John Bowlby's attachment theory. So you analyze the, the, the mind state of your relationships, uh, understand how you do it, and then uh, look at ways to uh, let go of unskillful behaviors and reinforce skillful behaviors. And if there's deficits in, in, in your skill set, to learn the skill set of secure relationships. Um, I'm also doing a meditation interventions class, which has all of the, the curriculum from the Meaningful Life. And in addition to that, it has the uh, relapse prevention uh, material that uh, Alan Marlat developed. So it's an empirically researched uh, protocol around what the main avenues that lead to relapse are and how you can circumvent them so that you don't relapse. Um, so uh, there, there's a... Hmm? Both of them are starting in September. They'll, they'll both uh, be on the second and fourth Sundays of the month. If you know anybody up in San Francisco, I'm going to be doing the same classes up there uh, on the first and third Sundays of the month. There's a flyer over there if you want to take a look at the, uh, the, the, the different classes or the retreats. There's some other flyers up there of, of different classes that are being offered by uh, other teachers. Take a look at those. The uh, classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna for a class here is $15. We've kind of crunched the numbers, and that's a good amount for us to keep the lights on and the doors open. I am an ardent supporter of having a meditation center to come to. One of the things about going deeply into a meditation practice is that it often can be challenging, and you need to be supported in your practice and uh, one way to do that is through relationships with people that are also practicing. If you've ever tried to explain to somebody the difficulty of your meditation practice when they're not meditating, the most likely response is going to be, why would you want to do that? Just stop. It'll be okay. Um, so finding people that you resonate with, that you can form intimate connections to, that will support you in practice is a vital piece of all of this. And if we didn't have a place to come to, to meet these people, to form these relationships, it would be very difficult to do. These places exist through this, this act of generosity that we do each time we come. We've been here for a long time, so maybe you think that we'll just continue to go here. But believe me, the, the finances of meditation um, centers are precarious in their best uh, day. So we take cash and credit cards. Uh, if you would also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.